The title of this morning's message is Seed of the Serpent versus the Son of God. Seed of the Serpent versus the Son of God. Really, this passage is about the children of Satan. And so if we weren't having a soft opening in here, that would be the title of the sermon. It would be Offspring of Satan. But because this is a celebratory historical moment in our church, we we make this Seed of the Serpent versus the Son of God. In today's passage, we see there are two reasons why Jesus refers to the Jews as offspring of Satan, children of Satan. The first reason is their deeds. Their second reason is their desire. And we are going to see that. If you have God's word, please meet me now in John chapter 8, where we see point number one, their deeds align with the devil. That's why Jesus uses these harsh words, and he refers to the Jews as children of Satan, because their deeds align with the will of Satan. Now, in verses 37 to 39, before we read it, just so you understand that Jesus nowhere denies that the Jews are physical descendants of Abraham. Jesus' point to the Jews is that, yes, they are physically descendants of Abraham, but spiritually, they are not acting like Abraham. They are acting like the devil. They're acting like Satan. You may have heard the phrase, like father, like son. Essentially, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, like father, like son, spiritually speaking, and actually here, their physical actions were reflecting their true father spiritually. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus, and Abraham would never act in such a manner. And so that's Jesus' point. Now, with that context, let's look to verses 37 to 41. But first, let me, let me read to you verses 37 to 39. Jesus says in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, physically, he's speaking, Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And another way to translate that is there is no room in your heart for my words. There is no room in your heart for me. If you have the New Living Translation, they actually make that translation. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you've heard from your father. Translation, I speak to you because I've heard from God, my father, Jesus said. You reject me because you're hearing, you're being motivated, you're being instructed by your father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. What are you talking about? We are children of Abraham. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Then you go to verse 40 and notice in verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So what Jesus means is that Abraham trusted in God. When it came to the promised seed, Abraham trusted in God. Abraham trusted in God's promise. And the promised seed of Abraham is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham sinned. Oh, he sinned. You're going to see later the insult that the Jews are acting like their father 
Satan, and Satan was a liar, he was a murderer. Abraham lied on two occasions to save his own skin. I've shared this with you before. We've talked about this. Abraham, being like us, he's afraid for his own life, self-preservation. The Bible tells us, I've never seen, but the Bible tells us that Sarah, his wife, was beautiful. And if the Bible says you're beautiful, she's probably really beautiful. But that was his wife. And so when Abraham travels to these other nations and these other territories, he's afraid that they, they want to take his wife. And so if he says... And this is really odd that even in their sinful pagan society of that time, if they somehow valued marriage more than we do in our day. And so if they were to find out, Abraham, this is your wife? Okay, we're going to kill you so we can take her. So he lies on two occasions say, this is just my sister. So that if they want to take her, they'll take her, but they won't kill him. Uh, so he doesn't have faith in God in those moments when his life is put in danger. But in the end relationally, he grows to trust God's, what? Character. That's the difference, is that Abraham learned to trust God's character. Case in point is the greatest testing in Abraham's life. God finally gives Abraham the promised seed, gave him a second chance. He had an Ill illegitimate child with Hagar. And God says, okay, I'm not going to cut you off from the promise. I'm still going to deliver the Messiah through you. And through your seed, I'm going to give you this miracle baby, Isaac. And so God tells Abraham, take Isaac up to the hill and sacrifice him to me. Now, Abraham knows that if Isaac is killed, that means the descendant, the promised seed, no longer comes through Abraham. So Abraham actually believed not, so, not just in God, but he believed in God's promise. And, and so his thinking is, God... If I, if you let me kill my son, then you're breaking your promise and you would not break your promise. See, he trusts not just in the words of God. You, you, you believe in the Bible because you believe in God. You believe in the Bible because you believe in God's character. And it takes time to learn about someone's character. And so Abraham had walked with God, sinned against God, broken promises on his end, and realized that even when I am faithless, God is faithful to me. That's what he's realizing. He's learning, even when I break faith, God does not break his promise to me. And so as a result, God, Abraham takes Isaac as, as, a, as a young man, puts him on that altar and says, God, you're either going to resurrect him from the dead, as Hebrew says, that's what Abraham believed, or I'm gonna, you're going to stop me. And so Abraham trusted in God's character. And he learned that. And so Jesus is saying, you are not like Abraham. If you truly love me, if you as a Jew knew that as many times as you have been proud, arrogant, and faithful, you would know my grace. And if you knew all the times in Israel's history, if you truly knew your Old Testament, all the times when you yoke yourselves to the idols of Babylon and to the foreign nations, yet I've never cut off my covenant from you, you would recognize that I am the promised seed. In other words, if Abraham somehow was alive during Jesus' day and heard Jesus' teaching, he would know you are my descendant, you are the Messiah, you are the promised seed, and Abraham would believe in Jesus and rejoice. And so that's what the Jews are failing to do. They reject Christ because in their heart they truly don't know Yahweh. 
There's no room in their heart for, for God. They don't truly know God. They don't know God's character. They don't trust his promises. That's a strong saying. It's so offensive that I, I want you to notice in verse 41. Jesus nowhere says to these Jews, you guys are spiritual adulterers or you're physically, sexually immoral. He doesn't say any of that. But why would you interpret Jesus with your response saying that uh, we are not guilty of sexual immorality? Why would you say that? Notice verse 41. He says, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, what do you mean we are not born of sexual immorality? We have one father, even God. Now, the reason they're saying this is because to a Jewish person, commentators talk about this when you look at the social historical context. To a, a Jewish person, it's all about genealogy. Your birth order and your birth, even your birth order, firstborn, secondborn, firstborn gets the inheritance, Jewish history. So your birth order, your birth identity is your value and your worth. worth. And to, so basically, they're interpreting rightly that Jesus is telling them, you are illegitimate children. That's really insulting to a Jew. To say to them, you are illegitimate children of Abraham. So they're interpreting that and saying, the only way we understand someone to be a, an illegitimate child is if that child is born out of sexual immorality, out of wedlock or out of the covenant context of marriage. And so I want you to notice the escalation, and this sets us up for our, our second point. But it's escalating. Jesus is building up uh, to a mic drop. For those of you who are older, just Google it. I don't know what it is either, okay? But the young people tell me it's a thing. No, I, I know what it is. But basically, next week's passage, Jesus is going to do a mic drop. And they don't even say anything, but they just want to kill him. Meaning a mic drop, like they have no response to him. It's that strong, that offensive. And he kind of builds it up. So first, he's like escalation. He's like, you guys are illegitimate children of Abraham. Oh, yeah? We're not illegitimate children. Actually, God is our father, verse 41. And then he says, God's not your father. Satan's your father. Very offensive to a Jewish person. Satan is, a, is, is if, if a Jew believes in Yahweh, Satan is at the polar opposite end. And then next week, he's going to say, I am God. And so that's what he builds up to. But he builds up to it. So he offends them, he offends them, he offends them. When you evangelize, we don't evangelize that way. We don't go in and evangelize the people telling them they're, they're children of Satan, even if that is true spiritually, right, apart from Christ. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying your deeds, your actions reflect your true spiritual father, Satan, but not only their deeds, now in verses 42 to 47, and this is a much longer point, it's their desires. So not only their deeds, but their desires align with the devil. Now, look with me now at verses 42 and 43, where we begin to see Jesus build up to this offensive statement. First in verses 42 and 43, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. So, in essence, he's saying, you don't love me, right? He's saying, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. But you can't recognize that I am of God. 
Keep that in mind for our application as Christians. Of God, of Satan. Of God, of Satan. Right? If you were of God, you would love me. Now, verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? So, translation, why don't people receive the Bible as objective truth? Why don't people surrender to Jesus Christ as the Word of God? Why do you not understand what I say? It's not because you can't hear what I'm saying, because you're obviously offended by what I'm saying, Jesus right, is saying. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. So it's not that they aren't able to hear. You know what it's like, right, when people go like this, I'm not listening, but they can hear it. Or someone is saying something to you, you're like, you know what, I'm going to tune you out. So Jesus could be clearer and clearer and clearer, and the more clear he is, the more they reject him. They're basically, they cannot bear to hear his word. They cannot stand him. And if he is the word of God, and if they can't stand the word of God, then they don't love God. That's his argument. But unlike the Jews who reject Christ, those of us who, by the grace of God, are of God, we learn to love Christ like Abraham. And we learn to begin to recognize the Messiah. God's true children love God. And being of God brings you back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 talks about being born of the God, being born of the spirits, being born of God, being born of the spirit. If you are not born of God, yes, sadly and harshly, spiritually you are born into sin and of Satan. Now verse 44 makes this crystal clear and I've highlighted and underlined, I bolded, it's bold on this huge screen behind me so you can see it. This is a great insult. He says, you are of your father, the devil. I want you to notice, stop there for a second. Even if you, you look at the Hebrew, when it talks about Satan, there's, a lot of times there's an article. Hebrew scholars, I, I know there's some of you in here. It's the Satan. I don't know if it's just Satan doesn't have enough dignity to be given a name. Or if it's just talking about his function. The devil has a function. He has deeds. He has actions. Everything about the devil is tied to lies and deception. But notice here, it says, you are, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. You see, character of God, truth, character of Satan, lies. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Wait a minute. Like I mentioned, Abraham lied. In those moments when Abraham lied, he was giving in to his true nature apart from God's promise. Our nature, when we are under threat and we need to protect ourselves, is to lie or to twist the truth so we can get out of consequence. But Jesus saves us. Abraham ended up not being a liar. He ended up being a man of truth, a man who believes in God. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? First, in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan deceived Adam and Eve, he did so through lies. So the function of the devil is a liar. He is a deceiver. Everything 
that Satan does is built on ideas and lies. Satan is a liar. Satan is a liar, and it, it is a lie that led to the fall of man. Secondly, Satan is a murderer. And, and what does he mean by that? Because murder, there's physical murder, but there's also spiritual murder. And so what the consequence of the fall is physical death and spiritual death, more importantly, because spiritual death leads to eternal judgment. Case in point, you take Genesis 3, you flip the page, Genesis 4, and the fruit of the fall is a brother kills his brother. Cain kills Abel. Yes, he was Abel, you know. Cain killed Abel because of what? Jealousy and anger. That sounds like Satan to me. Jealousy, anger, murder. Deceived into thinking that God loved his brother more than him. Jealousy, anger, bitterness. These are the marks of Satan in the desire and the hearts of man. The other thing about Satan is that Satan knew his aim. He wanted to spoil the party. He knew that he would be in hell. Okay, so Satan knows once he's cast out of heaven that he would be thrown into hell. So he's thinking, okay, I know that I'm going to hell. My aim in life now, Satan says, is to use my strongest weapon, deception and false ideas, to bring down as many of God's human creatures into hell with me. And so he knows his game. He doesn't know every step of the way of God's redemptive plan, but he knows that he's condemned to hell. Furthermore, he knows exactly how he's going to be defeated, and this is what Jesus is referring to when he says to the Jews, you guys are acting like Satan, you're acting like offspring of Satan, you're acting like Satan's progeny. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, the first part, just the first part of verse 14, after the fall of man, the Lord God said to the serpent, and then if you go down to verse 15, which I have for you, and I've used the NASB 1995, because I, I want to use the word seed rather than offspring. Both words are fine, but seed just carries a certain meaning to it. Right? It says, I will put enmity, meaning I'm going to put constant cosmic warfare and strife between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. There's this cosmic battle. Satan knows that there's going to be a seed that's going to defeat him because he says, he shall, crush, cr he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So this is the idea that there's going to be one day a descendant of the woman who's going to crush the head of Satan and reverse the curse. And you are just going to bruise his heel. So when your, bruises, when your heel's bruised, it hurts, but it doesn't kill you. So basically, Satan, you're going to cause some problems for the Messiah and God's redemptive people. But the Messiah is going to kill you. He's going to destroy you. Now, obviously, for those of you who know where I learned my biblical theology from is from Harry Potter. Because you see the same thing. You can't kill, Revelation 12, you can't kill the woman. I mean, you can't kill the, the promised child. You kill the woman. Go after, you know, later. And then there's good and evil and all that. And then Harry Potter, the type of resurrection. Come on, J.K. Rowling. I know you read your Bible. And, uh, you know, the, the greatest sacrifice is a friend who lays down his life for his friends. 
Anyway, you want to learn about patterns and typology and biblical theology, read your Bible, read Harry Potter. And, and seriously, you will see good and evil, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. You will see it. And even the whole theme of a snake. and You'll see it, Voldemort. You'll see it. Anyway, I, I, I'm sorry the youth aren't in here today, but that's for them, okay? This is what's happening. Jesus understands what Satan's deception is. I want you to see this pattern. And again, if you've read Harry Potter, you're going to see the same pattern, okay? Satan knows that the descendant of Eve is going to reverse the curse of the fall. And he's going to do it through King's cross, right? So he goes after all of humanity. So at the, at, at, right after Genesis 4, Satan is like, there's going to be a human being that's going to defeat me. I don't know who that human being is. So what does he do? He goes after every human being to the point where the, hum the entire human race is so filled with evil and violence, murder, deception, that God has to send a flood. Because Satan goes after everyone, but God preserves who? Noah. Why? Why doesn't God just kill everybody and start all over? Because he promised that it has to be a descendant of Eve, meaning it has to be a human being. So he's going to preserve Noah. After some time, the world is filled with sin again, and God narrows his redemptive plan on Abraham. It says, now I'm going to select you, Abraham, and it's through you that Messiah is going to come. Now, Satan knows that, so Satan goes after Abraham, tempts Abraham, tries to cause Abraham to have that illegitimate child. He does, but Abraham perseveres by God's grace. And he goes after Abraham's children. You look at Abraham's children and their sin and their evil. He goes after them. Satan already has the rest of the world under deception, but he's going after Israel to the point where, remember, murder, violence. Okay, so he goes after. So now Israel is in Egypt. And so Satan raises up his seed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to kill every male child because that seed is going to come and defeat me. But God preserves Moses. Later, when Pharaoh realizes the Israelites are leaving, he's willing to kill all the Israelites. But once again, through water and a flood, but a different type of flood, God kills Pharaoh's army, and the Israelites are delivered. Satan loses. A lot of stuff happens, you know. Fast forward, David is anointed king. Satan knows this. Satan raises up Saul. How do you know Saul a seed of the serpent? Jealousy, anger. Out of jealousy, deception, and anger, he tries to kill the seed that would lead to Messiah. Because he, Satan knows now, if I use Saul to kill David, out of jealousy and anger, then Messiah can't come. And he goes after them. Now, you see the same pattern, right? So God delivers David. David falls into sin, but God, but he repents. God keeps his promise to David, even though David is unfaithful. And then what happens? You get to the New Testament. Herod, Herod, just like Pharaoh, but Herod, jealousy, anger. There's going to be a newborn king of the Jews? I feel threatened. So what does Herod do? Herod says, I don't know which one it is. Let's kill all of the male children who are under a certain age. But, but God, what? He preserves Jesus. And so now you get to our passage. And the Jews 
feel threatened, and what do they want to do? Anger, jealousy, murder. They want to kill Jesus. You see this throughout all human history. So basically, that's all Jesus is saying. He's saying you are proving, Jews in chapter 8, that you are seed of the serpent. You're just like your spiritual father. Because if you were of God, you would not want to kill me. And eventually the Jews get together with the Romans and they have Jesus crucified, but God raises Jesus from the dead. And just as the devil hates the truth, the offspring of the devil, likewise, they will hate the truth. And we see this now in our final three verses. But in first in verses 45 and 46, Jesus says, Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? When Jesus says, which one of you convicts me of sin, they have no response to that. Jesus is, is essentially challenging them. Go ahead and try. I am sinless, Jesus is saying. That's a strong statement. They simply reject Jesus, and they don't believe him because they're of the devil. right? And then you go down to verse 47, and it says in verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God and the reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. And once again, that gets back to speaking to us as believers. Whoever is of God, you see this different language, of Satan, of God. Whoever is of God, whoever is born of God, hears my words and believes me. There's a, a classic old commentator. Um, I'm old at heart, so I, I, I like William Barclay. He's a little bit liberal, but his exegesis is really good. And one of his illustrations is he, he gives, or two that are helpful. He says, imagine that you're tone deaf, but you listen to music. You still hear the sounds, but you won't be able to hear the various tones enough to hear the full sound of the musical production. He says, um, if you're colorblind, you can still see. If you're colorblind and we put up an image, you can see that it's a picture. You know very clearly that it's a picture, but you're not going to see various colors and nuances to see the picture in its full definition. So people who are not born of God, they hear the gospel. They hear the word of God. The Jews hear. They hear the words of Jesus. They're offended. It's not that they don't hear. It's not that they don't listen. They, they hear enough that they're offended by it. But they will not believe. They will not come to truth because they are not born of God. And when you see that concept, it tells you, that even if, even if, yes, we're human beings, even if we, are, we have goodness in our hearts, the non-Christian still has some goodness in their heart. But it's a harsh truth, a reality, that until you're born of Christ, even the nicest grandma is a child of Satan. I didn't say it. I didn't say that to you. Jesus said it. And the big idea then is that Christ. Last week, we saw Christ sets us free. He's the truth that sets us free. Christ sets us free from the lineage of Satan. We, don't want, we never want to evangelize to someone and say, you are the child of Satan. Uh, <laughs> when they become believers, then you show them, actually, this is what Jesus saved us from. Big idea. Christ sets us free from the lineage of Satan and reconciles us with our heavenly Father. You see, we have our father, our, our spiritual father, apart from Christ, all of us, born into sin as 
children of Satan. And we have, at when we are saved, we become reconciled to God, and now we are children of God. And you also see that language in John chapter 8. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I was making a joke, and I'm saying that sometimes when, when you and I are, are, are parents, that we shouldn't use harsh words. We should use words salted with grace. And I said, sometimes you might want to yell at your kids, and, and in a moment of sin, you say, you're acting like you're Satan. I wasn't lying. Jesus does <laughs> this, right? Sometimes people act like Satan. Sometimes I act like Satan. When? When I'm angry. When I'm fearful and feel like I need to give an, a false image of myself. When I fall into deception. I think as Christians, what we see in a very negative passage is some reminder for us that's positive where we may not be murderers, but every single time we, we are angry, every single time we're envious, every single time we're jealous, or we're bitter, or we're proud, we are like Cain, a murderer, and we are like Satan. Every single time, we might not lie all the time, but every single time we are tempted to be dishonest or we're dishonest, like with our taxes, or we steal intellectual property, uh, or we project a false image of our identity on social media because we want people to see ourselves in a certain way, uh, or we live for what is not true. We are not Satan, and even as Christians, we're saved, but we see that we're acting like Satan. And how this is encouraging is that we simply need to confess our sin and we need to recognize, oh man, this is what Jesus saved us from. A nice way to put it is that when we struggle with anger and dishonesty, in those moments, we recognize the fingerprints of Satan on our hearts. But we right away give thanks to Jesus that if you are in Christ, we got the fingerprints of Satan still upon us, but we are not in the grips of Satan. We are in the hands of our Heavenly Father. But we all agree, none of us would disagree, that until we're glorified, until we get to heaven, we will sin. We will struggle with sin. And those are the fingerprints of Satan on us. And if we can recognize that, then we can recognize the strategies of Satan. There's an old book, um, a Puritan book. I know the Puritans got canceled by certain Christian cultures, but I still believe we should read the Puritans because I don't think we should cancel them. The Puritans, there's a book by Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. Buy the book. It's a little tough to read. It's lots of outlines. It's, it's in like old-style writing. Precious Remedies for Satan against for satan's devices read that devotionally and it just takes you through and really shows you how satan operates and you will see at the end of the day how he operates is to convince you that you're not a murderer you're just angry and when when, when there's bitterness and strife and disunity and broken relationships and broken marriages uh, that's what he loves to do he loves to turn people against each other he is a murderer that's how he operates, but he doesn't always go as obviously as, we, as, as we, we need to see. His ugliness is hidden through anger and, and self-righteousness. 
He's a liar. He uses so many deceptive schemes. So you have to recognize his, his strategies. But I will say to you, based on Abraham as our example, the greatest way to guard against error and falsehood, the greatest way to recognize Satan's strategies from what God is doing, honestly, is not so much to recognize Satan, but to recognize God. Recognize God. But that requires a lot of spiritual discipline. You've got to know God like Abraham knew God. You have to go through sin struggles for a season where you realize, oh man, I deserve God to kick me out of his family, but he hasn't. He keeps setting the table for me. He keeps setting the table for me. Some of you parents, I feel your heart. You're struggling. Your kids don't love God, but you love them. That table is always set for them. That's the heart of God. That's what some of you Sunday school teachers did for me when I was so evil <laughs> as a teenager. God, you recognize God, not Satan. You recognize the ways of God. Abraham learned, when I am faithless, God is most faithful to keep his promise to me. And so when Satan tells you, look, you're too sinful for God, you're too shameful for God, you got to block that out and run to your father. You got to know how to pray. You got to know how to pray. You know, I have set a bad example for you guys sometimes because my prayer life wasn't as intimate for a long time. I still am learning how to pray. And so a lot of times, in my earlier years as a pastor, every prayer, God, forgive me. You are holy, and I am undeserving. You're holy, and I'm sinful. You are holy, and I don't deserve to come to you. In like five minutes like that, God, I am such a sinner. Thank you for letting me pray to you. It's not that that's bad, but it shows you that I don't know God as well as I should. I heard Paul Washer, Paul Washer, convicting Paul Washer, share about this in a sermon I was re recently listening to. And Paul Washer was saying, parents, parents, what if your children came to you and said, Mom, I'm hungry, but I know I don't deserve to eat. I know that I'm ungrateful. I know I don't always appreciate your cooking. I know I don't deserve to eat, but can I please eat? I, I, I know. What if every single time it was dinner time? Dinner time! Lights are fun. Dinner time! Whatever you guys speak at home, right? Dinner time! Chow time! And your kid comes to you, Mom, Dad, I don't deserve to eat. I, I am such a sinner. You are so perfect, Mom. You are, it starts, let me adore you. Let me confess my sin. Let me give thanksgiving. Now, let me give you supplication. Now, I still don't deserve it. What would you say? Stop it, close your mouth, sit down, eat. <laughs> so now I pray, I still pray that, I pray differently. Just this week, I was like, God, I'm so stressed out about Sunday. Uh, I feel so horrible, horrible for some of our teams. Uh, Lord, I, I'm just, I'm struggling with my own pride too. I want to look good. I, I want people to see that, you know, we communicate well, all that stuff. And, you know, Pastor Albert did, said everything he needed to say and uh, really appreciate, you know, all of us. And I was just struggling. And, and, and finally, I said, Lord, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And finally, I just said, Lord, you know. You know how I feel. Recently, when I pray, I, I, I pray 
as if when I go to the Lord, then I'm sitting right next to the Father. And I just say, hey, 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 Dad, hey, Abba, thanks for setting this table for I'm not being disrespectful to God. It's just I, I, I'm learning more and more about what it means to follow God. There are other times where, I, like when I pray for Ukraine, I don't have words anymore. So just like some missionaries teach you to pray, like someone like Paul Washer, uh, you know, they might say, there are certain moments where you tell God specifically, God, I'm telling you everything you already know because I need to hear myself confessing that to you, that I don't trust you. So I'm telling you everything you already know. God, I'm so stressed about this. I'm so stressed about this. Other times, you just say to God, God, you know. I can't sleep. You know. And then you just go to sleep. God, you know. Learn through prayer. See, our church has no problem if I said to you, learn through Sunday school, learn through Bible reading, learn through theology. Yes, you need to learn about God. The Jews knew the Bible, but they didn't know the God of the Bible. Their prayer was so probably orchestrated through a temple system and through daily rituals and practices. Learn to talk to God like Abraham, where he walked with God and talked to him. So yes, we need our Bibles. The other thing we need to do is to block out the noise, and it takes time. Last week, I met with a pastor friend of mine who uh, prays for hours, and I just sat down with him, and I said, hey, can you teach me how to pray? He said, well, what are you struggling with? I said, you know what? Um, I have a hard time being silent with God. I said, as soon as I try to get silent with God, um, and I struggle, like, I immediately need to go on the internet to look for information about Ukraine or how to pray for church leadership, whatever. I have a hard time. I start thinking theology. He's like, yeah, there's too much in your head. I'm like, how do you pray for hours? How do you do that? He started teaching me about the, the rhythms of, of prayer. I said, I know all the right things to say. I know, I know Matthew Henry's method of prayer book. I, I know how to teach people to pray. How do you pray? And he said stuff like, oh, just sit there and just spend time with God. And it doesn't matter. You know, you're just sitting there. And oh, what if you're busy? He's like, well, it doesn't teaching me how to pray. And, and one of the things I, I told him is I, I can't enter a meeting without listening to God. He's like, well, what do you, you got to shut everything down. And so more and more recently, I have to block out my time. Like, like in the office, I have an appointment with God. You guys have to find a way to do that. And then you just, the first battle you need to do is to say, okay, I need to stop listening to information somehow. Not that you lose truth, but you start meditating on the Bible instead. If there's any information in your head, you're asking God, help me to understand what I just read in the Bible. And then you need to learn, and this is what I'm learning, how to discern the difference between your voice and the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. No wonder every single time God wanted to break down his leaders, he puts them into the wilderness. Moses, go into the wilderness to be a shepherd for a while. Elijah, you're going to go depressed. You know, it's, it's Jesus, you're going to be tested. After 40 days in the wilderness, that's where you're going to go, where, where there's no noise, no commotion, and you're going to learn to listen to me. And in our society, and I've talked about this before, that's hard to do. And so... Because that's exactly where Satan wants to deceive you. 
Because there are times where I've blasted off an email because I've read my Bible. Or I'll go to Pastor Albert, and he'll tell you. Uh, I'll say, Pastor Albert, we have to do this. We have to do this because, look, God's Word says this, and I read this article, and, and then this Gospel Coalition article said, we got to do this. we got to shut down here. we got to open here. we got to do this. And, and, and sometimes you might even self-righteously write a time saying, I'm going to go rebuke this person because the Bible says so. I'm doing what the Bible says. Well, how do you know that just like the Jews, how do you know that Satan is not using your own flesh and impatience to get you to think that you're doing God's will when in, in reality you're living for yourself or for God? How many times have we read of pastors falling into sin uh, and Christian leaders being exposed in the public eye because they were doing everything God's word, but they were doing it for greed or selfish, selfish motive, right? So a lot of times we can be deceived. Satan can use God's word to deceive us. So somehow you need to be able to discern what is actually the voice of the Holy Spirit from his word and I tell you as your pastor, I'm still learning to do that. So that's why I want to lead every single prayer meeting that I can because I want to be with the 30 of you who are there to learn how to pray, learn how to lead you to prayer. If we're going to go forward, we need to be a praying church, not just a preaching church. And help me, God, help you, God, right, that we would learn to listen, to stop listening to the world first, to stop listening to ourselves second and to learn to listen to God. And Abraham learned to do that. I know that's a lot of application for this passage. I'll land the plane here. Christ sets us free from the lineage of Satan and reconciles us with our Heavenly Father. Let's pray to him now. Father, you are holy. You do sit on your throne and we must give you reverence. At the same time, Lord, once you've saved us, you want us to have a relationship with you like Abraham. Father, I want, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to want those intimate times with you. Father, teach us not just how to read and understand our Bibles, but how to relate to you, how to recognize your voice in our minds and our hearts, how to recognize your work in this world. Help us, Lord, to see what you are doing even in dark moments, in dark times. Lord, we want to pray for our church. As we get to celebrate beautiful moments like this soft opening, help us, Lord, to continue to see the task at hand, that we are in a spiritual battle where you want to save souls. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior, that you would save them. Save them, Lord Jesus, especially our loved ones that we continue to pray for who don't know you. Will you save them? Open their eyes. Rescue them from the hands of Satan and bring them into the loving grip of God the Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.